In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's nice to be here. My thanks to uh, Stephen and Joseph for inviting me to be here and preach this morning. Uh, As you can see in your bulletin, I have this very fancy title. It's very fun to say, the Historian in Residence for Racial Justice. Um, What that means is that I work with churches in the Diocese of Long Island, um, talking to them about doing the research into the history of their parish's involvement in slavery and the slavery economy. And I'm looking forward to talking to any of you who would be interested in hearing more about that after the service. Um, That work, which um, has occupied me for, this is now my third year in this position, and there are some 20 churches in the diocese that I'm working with in one stage or another. But before then, let's talk a little bit about our gospel. The calling of Philip and Nathaniel. And I always have to go back and look it up. It's like, wait, which one is Nathaniel again? Because then in the list of the disciples, there isn't any Nathaniel. So in Greek, he's Bartholomew. I don't see how those two go together, but my Hebrew is not what it used to be. So Nathaniel is actually Bartholomew in every list of the Gospels. Keep that in mind. There'll be a quiz about it later. Um, So we have the call of Nathaniel and Philip. This passage also contains one of the few, as far as I can tell, instances of outright sarcasm in the Gospels. When Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, really, where else do we get anybody being a little snarky? You know, it's like Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why would I follow that guy? So I enjoy the setup, it's fun, but it's important that we talk today about call. What does it mean to be called? Samuel is lying there and a voice keeps calling his name and he doesn't know what's going on. And it takes three times and then finally Eli says, it's the Lord calling you. And boom, Samuel is launched on an awesome career as prophet and judge of the people of ancient Israel. And as far as I can tell, most of the time, things work out pretty well for Samuel. And he grows to be an old man and essentially retires. And, you know, that works out okay. Whereas the disciples who are called, these inner 12, if you go online and just Google, how did the disciples die? It is not a happy list. It is not a happy list at all. Philip... Philip, there's a great story in the book of Acts of Philip encountering what's known as the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer for the king of Ethi- the queen of Ethiopia. And they have this fabulous encounter, and they talk to each other, and he's reading the book of the prophet Isaiah, and Philip gives him some commentary on it, and the next thing you know, the eunuch says to, to Philip, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Like this great sort of impulsive conversion. It's fabulous. And so after all these things, the tale is that Philip went to Ethiopia and continued his work there and then traveled to various other places. But what got me 
into this line of history is that back years ago when I was doing doctoral work, I ended up writing about the history of St. Philip's Church in Harlem, which is the first black Episcopal church in New York City and only the second in the country. And I wrote about their pre-Civil War struggle to be fully admitted into the Diocese of New York, which was otherwise white. Why is it called St. Philip's? Because a lot of churches that were founded as, by black congregations named themselves for Philip, who converted the first black African in the Bible. So that's kind of cool. And so you think, Philip, great career he's off to. Apparently, he ends up crucified upside down somewhere in Turkey, according to traditions. Yeah, that's encouraging. Um, Nathaniel Bartholomew, on the other hand, is supposed to have traveled as far as India and then came back, converted people, ends up in Armenia, where he is whipped to death. That doesn't sound like a good end either. And so you wonder sometimes, or at least I do, you know, like, how badly do you really want to be called by God? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've been doing this for 40 years now, and... I've never actually really been very comfortable being a priest because, you know, the models are a little frightening. Seriously, I had the opportunity to get to know a man named Gordon McMullen, who was um, the bishop of Down and Dromore, which is kind of a fun thing to say, which means, though, Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I knew him after he'd retired when um, he used to spend time every year at St. James Church on the Upper East Side of Manhattan where I worked for many years and I got to know Gordon pretty well. And he was bishop through some of the worst of times in Belfast and had just horrific stories to tell about some of the ministry he had to do there. And he preached one morning on, I, it was one of the disciple call stories and he talked a little bit about his ministry, and then he said, the reward for doing good work in ministry is generally the opportunity to do more. And I just sat there behind him going, oh, really, yeah, that is how it goes, right? We are called always to do more. It became a kind of mantra for me that if I had a decision to make about what to do in a particular ministry situation, it had become clear to me that whatever I wanted to do was not what I was going to do. It was what I was afraid to do, that I was going to have to do. Because that is my experience, is what the call to ministry ends up being, Right? And I think you all know that too. You know you're called to do things that may not be the thing you want to do, but is the thing you need to do. You are called to do. And all of that is just prelude to say that we're here to celebrate Martin Luther King weekend. The thing about Martin Luther King that I always have to remind myself about he was 19 when he graduated from Morehouse College. He was 22 when he graduated from seminary. 
He was 25 when he took over Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. I started seminary at 25, and I can tell you I had no idea what I was doing, what I was getting myself into. And he was running a church. And then he was running the Montgomery bus boycott at the age of 26. And at the age of 27, he had a crisis of confidence, right? He was getting something like 40 death threat phone calls a day. And he came home from a long day of an evening of meetings one night and his wife Coretta was new, fairly new wife Coretta was asleep and the phone rang and somebody shouted imprecations at him and told him he was going to be killed. And he went into the kitchen and made a cup of coffee and he sat down and he prayed. And he said, Lord, I don't know if I can do this anymore. He admitted that he was scared and that he felt totally alone. He was 26. And he heard a voice, sort of like Samuel. He heard a voice that said, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be with you always. The opportunity to do more was his reward for doing good service. And he did so much more. And he was such a young man. I do this history work because I love history, but it's hard. I'm the retired, very part-time associate at St. Anne and the Holy Trinity in Brooklyn Heights Church, where I was the full-time associate some 35 years ago. And I spent a year working with some high school students researching the history of that church, of those two churches. St. Anne's, the oldest Episcopal church in Brooklyn, founded in 1784, at least 50% of whose early members turn out to be enslavers. And Holy Trinity, a church founded in 1849, 20 years after slavery ended in New York State. So therefore, those members were not enslavers, but we could demonstrate that 50% of the leadership of that parish made their money off the slavery economy. St. Anne's Church was founded by a group of people who met in the living room of Joshua and Ann Sands and eventually incorporated themselves into a parish. And when they incorporated, they chose Anne to be their patron saint to honor Anne Sands for her hospitality and for her work launching the Sunday school in the parish. The students that I was working with are students at St. Anne's School, which was founded by that parish, is now independent, but still keeps that name. And one of them, Basically, what I was doing each week was giving them a set of names of early parishioners, and they would look them up online to see whether they were enslavers or not. There's a really great database that I'll tell you about afterwards. And one of the students 
had the names of the sands one week, and she looked them up, and she came to our next meeting, and she said, my school is named for an enslaver. What are we supposed to do with that? Most of the streets in Brooklyn Heights are named for the original farms, the owners of those farms. So Jeroleman Street, and Borum Street, and Hicks Street, Skimmerhorn Street, those were all farms, and they were all enslavers. So we walk their streets every day. This is hard work. I love the research. I love the chase for information. But it's hard when the information you find is always so difficult, such a disappointment. But that's the work I've been called to do. It's nothing compared to what Martin Luther King was called to do. All of us, though, are called the opportunity to do more. Amen.